He konai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora e te whanau. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Duncan Smith. Great to have your company. Ko Sally Round tēnei. Today, Cosmo visits a little museum on the West Coast that's bursting at the seams with country music memorabilia. Leah heads to Bay of Plenty to find out how farmers are restoring the health of one of New Zealand's most polluted estuaries. And later on, the eggs from a young bull are not all they're cracked up to be in the latest instalment of our A Year on the Farm series. But first, to a roundup of the week's rural news. Let's start with the global dairy auction this week, which saw prices tumble further. Yes, dairy farmers are gritting their teeth as global dairy prices nosedive to a a four-and-a-half-year low. NZX dairy analyst Alex Winning says Fonterra and its suppliers are already adjusting to expected lower returns, which will have wider impacts on the economy. I'm hearing that there's going to be less milking, less feeding, less fertiliser, really bringing down those costs. Helmet powder as a whole has declined 40.2% over the last six months, so that is really going to have flow-on effects on farms. And Taranaki share farmer Hayden Goble says a lot of farmers thought prices had bottomed out a fortnight ago. He says he's already moved to cheaper supplementary feed and culling cows not up to scratch. It's a busy time of the year to get all this bad news, but I suppose we have an opportunity to minimise our losses now at the start of the season instead of being most of the way through. So I don't think there'll be many farmers making money this year. So yeah, for young farmers, there'll be a few of them that you know haven't experienced this before and it, it is bloody tough. Now the nationwide rural merchandise store Farmlands is feeling the flow-on effects of the price drop and high interest rates. It says farmers and growers are tightening their belts and spending less on apparel as well as capital projects. Here's Chief Executive Tanya Horton. Whether it's a culvert going in or a fence line being replaced, people are definitely looking to make do with what they've currently got as opposed to doing what would normally be a more regular replacement program. And some farmland staff have been given extra training on chatting with customers who want to spend time talking about financial stress. And there's growing concern about poor grass covers on many North Island farms. Yes, Colin Hanna farms beef in Northland and he says many farmers there are on a knife edge. Paddocks were looking exceptionally good leading into winter but now he says grass has melted before his eyes. Many of the dairy farms I've spoken to have already used up their silage. So they're going in, in, into spring, cows are calving and, and lower covers than they would like. On beef farms, um, most of them, people that I've been talking to, are also in that same situation. I'm OK, but the feed quality that I've got is very poor. Nitrogen is probably the only option at the moment. And Colin says the choppers have been busy roundabout as it's the only way to apply fertiliser. And now ag consultant Gary Massix says ewes are carrying an exceptional number of lambs this season and farmers really have no choice but to go to the expense of helicoptering fertiliser onto paddocks. And that's really hard on the back pocket when lamb prices are plunging. And he says there's been other work to do too. Oh, the other thing the helicopters have been busy with is... Uh pulling quad bikes out you know we always know we get we get the odd quad bike stuck in winter but this winter there's been quite a few bikes stuck and and those sort of things which is just a symptoms of continual wet weather
It seems like the only North Island region flying a happier flag is Taranaki, which has fared better this winter. Oh, good to have some good news. Now, you have news from the Chatham Islands too. Yes, and there's been a feed shortage there too with the wet weather. Robert Holmes, who runs 450 ewes and 50 cows, uh, he's lamenting there was only one dry day in July. Very wet. Absolutely saturated. Yeah. And it's just been wet, wet, wet. Just the same as most parts of New Zealand. But being an island, it's, it's, um, it's a bit different because... We can't just trade stock whenever we want to. Another issue on the Chathams is the huge backlog of stock to come off the island as their boat was out of action for four months. But it's been repaired and has made its first shipment to Timaru. Let's look at some financial results which came in this week from companies involved in the primary sector. Yes, the company best known for its red band gumboots, Skellerup, has posted another record full-year result. It makes a range of rubberware for farms as well as boats, cars and kitchen appliances and its profits were up 7% to $50.9 million. The company's rewarded shareholders with an increased full-year dividend of $0.22 cents a share. As for the rural services provider PGG Wrightson, its annual profit has dropped by nearly a third. A Māori kiwifruit exporter has had a bit of a coup. Yes, Māori kiwifruit growers incorporated has just entered the exporting scene, sending their first trays of gold and green kiwifruit to Hawaii. The exporter has about 40 members and it's partnering with Zespri on the deal. The group's chair, Anaru Timutimu, says they'll run a distinctive indigenous-backed marketing campaign from next year, which will link well with Hawaiian locals and it'll also be a new selling angle. We're really lucky to be working with Zespri and it's probably an example where Māori and a corporate like Zespri can both kind of benefit for our relationship and um, there's some commercial benefits there as well and maybe an exemplar for other New Zealand companies. Yeah, we all await those developments with interest. Now, a New Zealand wool product that's gone way further than Hawaii has opened doors. Yes, Lanako's wool-based filters are being used in NASA's Artemis space project and they were in the critical life support system on the Orion capsule that went to the moon last November. Company founder Nick Davenport says that connection and the sustainability properties surrounding wool have opened up new business opportunities. Uh, One of them is in the air conditioning side where we're getting a really strong uh, response both for domestic and commercial air conditioning systems where the technology is lining up with a number of things. One is uh, the need to have lower energy and two is higher performance post-COVID. Now... Some news also on the banana industry in Northland. Yes, it's been a few years now since there was a large push to increase banana plantations in the Northland's warmer climate. Chair of the Tropical Fruit Growers Association, Hugh Rose, says there are about 100 hectares of bananas in the region, but the market could absorb produce from 16,000 hectares. He says returns are good at over $50,000 a hectare for fruit alone. He says there are about 60 small commercial growers at the moment and it's expected that number will increase a lot this season. We're expanding orchards uh, or plantations from last season to previous seasons. Once you've got a few plants in the ground, they're actually self-producing and take off to the farmer's markets and they're snapped up. A fair bit does does tend to get down to um, Auckland and beyond. It's a high-priced item, but uh, people who know about it, they want it. And apparently there's a good market for the banana leaves at the Diwali celebration in November. 
<laughs> now, it's six months since Cyclone Gabrielle hit. How are farmers and growers getting on? Well, many are still in survival mode in those worst-hit areas of Hawke's Bay and Te Tarawhiti. Paul Painter of Yummy Apples says they're more optimistic than straight after the storm that some of their trees may come back to life after being smothered in silt, but there's still no certainty. I think we've lost about $8 million worth of revenue. I think to replace the orchards that have been damaged it will cost at least $15 million. So it's a gargantuan sum for a family business. I mean, we're desperately crippled. Um, it'll be the rest of my career working out of this disaster. And uh, But, you know, there's, it's the only way forward. So we'll put our heads down and carry on. Paul Painter says the government's financial packages are helpful, but with most growers in the industry over 60 years old, they're assessing if it's worth staying in the sector. And a new database has been launched to map the work of improving rural waterways. Yes, now we've spoken to quite a few farmers on this show about the work they're doing around this. And the new Healthy Waterways Register aims to paint a clearer picture on what's being done nationwide. Katerina During of the Cawthron Institute says tracking which methods improve water quality over time will make restoration work more effective. While it's great that everyone is squirrelling away on their land in smaller sections, we really need to look at the entire catchment and what has been done at those large scales because we're also degrading these catchments at large scales. So we also need to restore them. So to be able to size the task ahead is a, a real key vision that we had. And more shearers are set to tackle world records this summer. Yes, seven shearers have put their names in the hat with the World Sheep Shearing Records Society to compete from mid-December. It's believed to be the highest uptake since the eight- and nine-hour shearing records were first recognised in the late 60s. Competitors will have a go at titles in shearing sheds across the country from December to mid-February. And that's the latest in rural news, Duncan. Yes. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. We're heading to Hector now, a coastal township between Westport and Karamea on the west coast. Cosmo Kentish Barnes spotted a museum sign on the side of the main road and followed the arrow. It led to a converted garage at the end of the street with only native forest beyond. Inside, he was greeted by a music aficionado in his early 80s. I'll put a wee bit of backing track on here just to give you an idea. My name is Barry Skinner and I'm the owner of the Hector Country Music Museum. Why and how did you start this museum? Well, I always was a collector of records and music, you know, LPs and stuff, and was in Australia and um, I used to go to, in Australia, Slim Dusty and a lot of those early artists would travel around the country, come to little wee towns like Granity or Hector, but people would come probably from probably 100 miles, even a couple hundred miles around to come and see these. And I started with the photos, with getting autographed photo. And that's how it started, you know, and uh, so I started writing and to a lot of artists in America. There's about 650 autographed photos in here. The walls are covered in autographed photos. Are these all ones that you've collected? Yes, yeah, yeah. I've run out of wall space, so I'm hanging off the roof now. <laughs> What's the most famous one you've got? Oh, well, I've got Glenn Campbell, Mill Hay, Ray Charles, Willie Nelson. I've got them all. You know, those guys are, are 
they big, you know. Willie's still going. Merrill died. Buck Owens is another one. And uh, so there's all there's all um, American and Australian and, and of course Kiwi mm. in this uh, place here, you know, all through here. So you've travelled around the world? I've been to Nashville twice and the uh, first time I went to the fanfare, which is what fans come, I think there was 52,000 fans come to Nashville for about 10 days. You went to Nashville to collect autographs? Yeah, to meet a lot of these artists because you could. You could. They were in the Tennessee State Fairground and they have a, a whole weekend they've got a, a, a booth, what they call a booth, yeah. and they sell t-shirts, caps, yeah. records, and you can, you can get photos of them and you can uh, take photos of them and give them a cuddle if you want to. If, and you can line up and have a chat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Does and, that still happen? No, I, from what I gather now, with the way things are, they come down, my mate of mine has taken a couple of tours over there, to Nashville, and uh, they come down the Cumberland River on a barge and wave to you like the Queen. You're on the side of the bank. It's just because what's happened today with people that were in danger and people yeah. just with some desirables we've got in this world. Yeah, things have changed, haven't they? <laughs> people, oh, it's, it's so, you know, you could talk to them, you could, and it was really great, you know. I remember Randy Travis, he was so hot in 1986. He was, he was, the top king, he had the key to the city and he could do anything. And I got to about five in the queue to meet him. And then I went and met him at the, he was at the Country Music Hall of Fame. And it was like, remember Elvis and all the screaming teenagers used to yeah, yeah. scream and yell. <laughs> and it was just like that. And uh, you couldn't get near him. So it was probably... Uh, I come, when I come back, I sent him a letter and I was doing a radio program um, at the time on radio and, and in Bacargo actually. I, done, um, I was with uh, Fova Radio. And anyway, I sent him, a, sent him a letter asking for a photo and I said, could I get a, a voice jingle, Christmas jingle, greetings. It was really funny. He uh, replied back and he had that on a tape and he put... Uh, I had to say, hi, I'm Randy Travis. For the best in country music, tune in to Barry Skinner's country show, 12.24 a.m., 8 to 12 Sunday mornings on Fovo Radio. And instead of saying Fovo, we had Foo Foo Radio. <laughs> so you had your own country radio show? Yes, it was only part-time, four hours a week, Sundays, mornings, and uh, used to have um, three-quarters of Invercargill tuned in. I bet they did. That's on surveys results and Slim Dusty was out in 95 hadn't been to New Zealand for about 30 something years came out and I had him uh, for four hours the whole show and we were getting phone calls from all these ham radio guys we even had one from Australia a guy was listening to it I was the only one that got a radio interview with him and of course this this would be my most prized possession this this poster this big poster yeah with the first day cover, that's Slim in 52. He put out 107 albums. The walls are totally covered in signed photographs. Mm. The ceiling is totally covered in... LP covers. LP covers. Yeah. There's some CD covers in here as well, but uh, mostly LP covers. And there's um, quite a bit of country music memorabilia. There are caps, booklets. There's old songbooks, buckles, T-shirts, 
And on top of a glass cabinet, you've got some old 45s at. I brought these in the other day, yeah. But I've, I've got to virtually say, you know, I've got no room. <laughs> there are also quite a few musical instruments. Um, yeah. Do you play? Yes, I play a steel guitar and a dobro. There is a steel guitar here, a blue one. Um, tell me yeah. about that. Well, I built that about 20 years ago. And... Uh, I got very bad arthritis in my hands and I couldn't play guitar. And uh, I moped around, you know, when, you, when you've been playing an instrument for a long time and then you can't do it, you get very frustrated. And, uh, but anyway, after about well, four or five years, my wife said, why don't you take up steel guitar? And I said, oh, I couldn't play one of those things. But I, I did, and the, the original one is in the cabinet there. So I took it up and, uh, yeah, and developed with it, and I play a, a Dobro too, which is a resonator guitar. That's, uh, that was introduced into America in the, about 1928, 29. It's got a big steel plate that, it. It's got the, what they call a resonator, you know, and um, beautiful sound. They, they really ring, you know. And they're used a lot in bluegrass and, and traditional. I play it a lot. I go to. I play a lot of festivals, uh, but now at the moment, my wife's very sick, and I can't get away. But I can get away the odd one, and um, the dobro is just a sound you, you never hear. Mm -hmm. and, Would uh, you like to play a tune for me? I could play a tune. Um, I've got bad arthritis, and most of them have a have a. A strap around them and, and hold it out, but I've got to sit down and play. You have three picks on your fingers. Three steel picks? Steel picks, yeah. What do they do? They, well, a dobro is not a, like a guitar. It's, a, it's an instrument that, um, it's like a filling instrument. Mm. You cannot play it rhythm like a guitar, you know. That's why I use the backing track. <laughs> Skinner at his country music museum in Hector on the west coast. He says he can go for a couple of weeks without getting a visitor, so pop in and say hi if you're passing through. Now, to check out a video and photos Cosmo took at the museum, and photos from all our other stories, go to the RNZ Country Life webpage. We're heading to Bay of Plenty now to find out about a project helping farmers move towards a greener footprint. Fifteen farmers have been involved in the three-year Lighthouse Farm project so far. Here's producer Leah Tebbett to tell us more. I'm at Waihee Estuary. It snakes behind the beachside town of Pukahina before bulbing out to the low-lying land where it's fed by brown rivers that better resemble streams. It stands as one of the country's most polluted estuaries where many native plants, fish and bird life struggle to survive. 
We're down at the Pukahina Beach and the estuary, the Little Waihi estuary, which is at the bottom of three rivers that can't flow into that estuary, and that's the Pongakawa, the Whareri and the Kaikokopu all come down into this estuary. It drains an hydrological area of about 34,000 hectares that starts up right at the headwaters of springs that come out into the middle of the catchment from Lake Rotowiti and Rotowehu. That's Dr Alison Jews. Since the beginning of 2021, she has led the community catchment group Waikukapu. The vet, farmer and ecologist has been working with over 40 farmers to restore health to the estuary. We've got really intensive land use here. So mainly down the bottom here we've got the dairy farms. There's about 11 to 13,000 hectares of dairy farms. Presently there's only about 58 dairy farms. There were about... 75 when we first started this catchment program three years ago. There's about 2,000 hectares of horticulture which is pretty intensive as well and the balance would be forestry, bush, urban areas and um, sheep and beef in the mid to upper catchment as well. So what did this estuary how big was this estuary at one point? Yeah, I mean, those are things before, well before my time. I would imagine that a lot of this lower land here below State Highway 2 was all just a wandering wetland, really, where these rivers would just run free. At the moment, these rivers have all, are all augmented into straight lines uh, with stop banks holding, sort of, you know, holding them together in the lower areas. And the... The lowland is all drained, effectively used for dairying mainly, and um, the drains also make their way into the estuary. I suppose it's all part of trying to make the most economic use of the land available, and this is all around New Zealand, isn't it? Going back to the start of the project, you did a lot of water testing. You mentioned that you actually lived down here for a couple of years to test the water every and the shellfish every two weeks or so. What were you finding at that stage? What was the state of things? And not, a, not in a good state at all, which is probably not atypical of a lot of estuaries around New Zealand, and this is one of the five most degraded estuaries in New Zealand. The Regional Council fortunately had done catchment modelling where they had made some assumptions around the loads of nitrogen and phosphorus and E. coli coming from the surrounding land areas into the estuary and what degree of reduction would be required to get the estuary and surrounding waterways into a moderate state of health. And it indicated that E. coli loads need to come down by about four to five times, that nitrate load would need to come down by about 70% and phosphorus down by about 30% and sediment reductions wherever we can do that. So we did two years of water testing as well at the beginning of our catchment period and we were testing shellfish flesh as well as all the rivers coming into the estuary and it really just validated what a poor state it was in. We thought do we keep spending money on continuing to test when you know the trends aren't really improving and this will take a couple of generations to fix, we've just got to accept that and we probably need a reasonable amount of land use change to improve things as well. Mm, so the shellfish, is it viable for them to be eaten in this estuary? No, not at all. We've never found it to be safe for human consumption. Mm. But this was once a major food bowl for the area or the coastal Bay of Plenty in general, wasn't it? Absolutely. Now if we just think about the 34,000 hectare 
catchment that I've just described, starting at the Rotorua Lakes and making their way down to the coastal Bay of Plenty, if we really did a budget to say, hey, look, we want everything remediated in here and probably the lower 3,000 hectares to be reverted back to a wetland, and maybe it could have some economic benefit with whitebait farms or other things like that, but we haven't quite sort of sorted that out yet. But of the 34,000 hectares, when we did a budget on remediating the whole area, it was more to the tune of 60 million. And we've really only had 3 million to just work with farmers and um, plant some of the vulnerable areas in the catchment. The project was funded by MPI. The group secured $1.45 million through the Jobs for Nature Fund, but that has since run its course and is now relying on local philanthropic groups. What have you managed to achieve? Because you only started in sort of February 2021, wasn't it? Yeah, probably raised awareness of how big the problem is. And as you know, it takes time for people to get their heads around how big the problem is, what needs to change and how long it's going to take to change but what we have been really heartened by is some of these good farmers that we've worked with once they knew their baseline of you know the nitrogen leaching and um, some of the steeper slopes that maybe were causing them more trouble than they were worth and their phosphorus losses as well and they knew the degree of reduction eventually that was required some of them have made very rapid change Uh, some of them have identified all the steep slopes that they want to take out constrain their milking platforms to look at um, how they can have alternative income streams we've just tried to wrap around specialists that can help these farmers explore a journey of change and many of them have made change it's just a pity that the project has ended within three years I've ventured up the road to Pongakawa, a mere 10 kilometres to Paul Hickson's farm. He's one of the farmers involved in the project. We're at the top of the hill looking over some of your native plantings, but could you tell me what is the farm and how big it is, first of all? Oh, well, it's not that big. <laughs> it used to be about 100 hectares, of, or 130 hectares, and then the family broke it down. So now we've got about... Uh, 80 effective hectares of daring, including some lease, of, we lease off my brother and a thing I'm in with my sister. And uh, we've got about 13 hectares of key fruit. We've got about 20 avocado trees for a bit of diversification. We've got uh, a wetland of about one hectare. And we've got native planting on this hillside. I think it's about two hectares. Plus there's also riparian planting. Young, uh, over there you see there's a Punani stream. We've done all that ourselves. And we've got riparian planting along other smaller streams on the farm. One thing about the planting I think is quite satisfying is when you do it yourself though. And when I do it with the children and grandchildren, they come and see it a couple of years later and they say, I did that granddad or I did that dad. And there's a sense of satisfaction about it. You've already described how where it is and how big it is, but there's a lot to take in. All the different trees, you've got um, different shrubs and flaxes and even a pond that sits in the middle of it. Like, it is a beautiful place to be, and it's only about three years old, so it's only going to get better. Well, I hope it's going to get better. <laughs> but we planted some few interesting species. We've got prurian things, and we've got something called swamp myri. They're quite an interesting species. We've got totara along the top here. 
and it'll probably get Rimu as well. So what was the purpose or the reason behind changing it from, from this little bit of area anyway to native planting? My brother really got more interested in environmental things and then Waikakapu came along and the steepness of the slope and for daring it. Originally we are just going to do half of the area we see in front of us and the rest is going into a pasture but again we saw it was too steep mm. and we thought oh, we'll plant the whole lot of natives so we thought we'd do two things. One, reduce the bad effect of uh, econo- uh, environmental effects of some of these fertiliser use and things. Uh, slopes were too steep so it was natural to do the native planting and um, I'm looking forward to when the trees grow. The concept of, um, I think it started, the, thing, the Waihe estuary, Little Waihe, we used to have a batch of volcano and uh, when you can't get shellfish and Tangafina can't get shellfish from what was a natural feed source is quite terrible. Uh, the stream that runs from our farm down there I think had a lot of E. coli, according to my brother, early on, one of the worst places for E. coli. That all runs down to the Waihe estuary and I think Waikakapu by saying well, we're going to clean up the estuary but also work with the lighthouse farmers in the area trying to improve the environmental damage from overuse of fertiliser etc go to different systems of less intensive um, dairy farming, I think it's all been very good. And I've learned a lot there. I mean, I'm not a, where orchards fully managed. So I've got a share milk Lex and Connor Rolleston, and I profess to have not a great knowledge in these things, but I do find going to them, you learn a little thing. It's interesting in the orchard. We did the nitrogen uh, testing, you know, with the, how much nitrogen we put on for the fertilisers. I think it might be 105 kg, so you think, oh, that's all right. And they say, what compost did you put on? So you put the compost on, they look at the composition of the compost and find that the compost has as much nitrogen as the fertiliser. And this might have been the particular mix. So you're actually putting double the amount of nitrogen on that you need to. Compost is good for organic things. So those are the sort of little things you learn. Uh, one of the problems I see over the next couple of years is probably the financial, with interest rates high, lower dairy returns. It's all very well doing all this native planting, riparian plantings, but you also look at the economics of it as well. When there's pressure on through interest rates, falling commodity prices, you've got to, there has to be a balance. Mm. So I suppose in terms of native planting things, you want to make hay while there's sunshine and do it when you've got good commodity prices. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but no, I don't, I don't think it's too hard. So we're actually doing things that are good for the environment but it's also going to have a, a positive economic impact. We've got to do it. It's good for everyone. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I think we've all just got to embrace change. And uh, I think what we're doing and what a lot of farmers are doing is wonderful for farming and the country. And I wish the positive things that farmers were doing got more publicity. But when I look at what the lighthouse farmers are doing in the area, I think there's 17 of us, what Kwakwaikopku have done, it's a very good role model for every other farming area in New Zealand and I wish the city people would sort of learn more about what we're doing and what we've done because we're great. And we might drive a diesel truck <laughs> but on that diesel truck there's often three or four hundred plants sitting there that we're going to plant that morning with my grandchildren. So we can't have everything, mm. we've got to balance. I decided to call Pim de Monchi of the Regional Council to hear his view on the situation. Waihi estuary is currently in a degraded state, um, both ecologically and in terms of being able to meet 
human health and recreation needs. The state of this estuary, is this common across many estuaries in the coastal Bay of Plenty? No, this one and Makatu estuary, just to the west, are the two most degraded estuaries in the region and they need substantial changes from the status quo in order to be restored to at least a moderately healthy state. It's the intensity of the land use, that's what's led to the the degradation of the estuaries. There is a wetland being constructed nearby the Wahi estuary? Yes, that's right. So um, recently council bought uh, one of the dairy farms on Cutwater Road, where I'm selling about three quarters of that farm to a neighbour who will continue dairy farming on it. But we're retaining ownership of 30 hectares, and that will be uh, co-owned by regional council together with the uh, iwi collective Te Wahapu or Waihi. And we're currently in the process of co-designing a mixture of wetlands on that 30 hectares. So we're thinking at the moment that about a third of it, it will be constructed as a treatment wetland and around two-thirds of it will form natural coastal wetlands more for biodiversity and uh, cultural purposes. And while that's obviously good to have something happening in that way, do you think it's a big enough amount of land to sort of make an impact? It's definitely big enough to make an impact for the 471 hectares of land that feeds into that 30 hectares. Um, NIWA recommends that uh, catchments set aside 2 to 5% of their area for treatment wetlands in order to reduce contaminant loads by up to about half, which is quite a significant step. But obviously it's not big enough to treat the water from the 35,000 hectare catchment. So um, a number of other initiatives are needed as well. I also asked Dr Jews what her blue sky vision was for the estuary and the land that surrounds it. The land in this catchment, the three or 4,000 hectares here, is typical of what we'd see right down the coast here to Whakatane. You know, there may be six or 7,000 hectares uh, down this coastal Bay of Plenty that will eventually need to change, especially with climate change, more frequent weather events. These straightened rivers act like high-pressure hoses because they, they're not allowed to just wander their way down to the coast, even when there are high water flows. You know, our farmers have had a really hard time this year. It's been Their farms, the low-lying farms, have been really heavily bogged. They're probably saying as well, what do I do on this farm? So what we do need is an independent group to explore those things and say how could this land best be used and what should it look like in 2030. And it might be that, yes, we do have to grow fibre, we can do aquaculture down here, maybe we need a little seaweed farm. I understand there's a whitebait farm that's just started in the bottom of the South Island We need to be giving farmers a way to transition from what they have been doing for 50 or 100 years to say, yes, the world's changed, yes, the land's changing, and yes, we do need a food system that's appropriate for the well-being of all, and what does that look like? Dr Alison Dews ending Leah's story. You also heard from farmer Paul Hickson and Pim DeMonchi of the Bay of Plenty Regional Council. The project will be able to continue for another year with financial support from Bay Trust and TECT, trusts funding community projects in the region. My name is Woodsy. I'm the maker of Woodsy Rockers. I'm from Taranaki. You are listening to Country Live on RNZ National. Now it's time for the latest instalment of A Year on the Farm. 
It's a series that Cosmo Kentish Barnes has been making with Oxford farmers Alistair and Jenna Bird. Alistair, give me an update. What's been happening over the past couple of months? Yeah, uh, welcome back. Um, winter. It's been quite kind, really, for us here. Um, it got cold for a wee bit, but then yeah, we got a bit of rain and it's warmed up. And grass has kept growing pretty well all the way through. And then, of course, we just had a big rain just the other day, but we're not too bad after that, so 130 mils in about 36 hours, something like that. So it's pretty good. And then, yeah, so going back, we scanned some heifers. And the scanning results um, haven't been great for you this season. No, so the, the mixed-age cows were, were not too bad. I think we were 8% dry in the mixed-age cows, something like that. And then, yeah, but the, the heifers, the first calving and second calving heifers were about 50% dry. So one of our bulls had broken down, essentially, so he just didn't mate anything. <laughs> um, luckily we well, we single sire mated so that's one bull per mob of cattle um, and then we joined them together luckily uh, after about three weeks so then the bull that was in the other lot was fine so he started mating the ones that were unmated mm. and then in hindsight it's quite lucky but one of the neighbours bulls jumped in <laughs> and, uh, he, and, and did a bit of a job as well for us so we've been testing the bull in question a couple of times just over the last uh, we tested him yesterday for the second time and, and the first time was a, about a month ago and so his sperm is not that active, only about 40% active. Normally you, you want 95 or 98% active so we're working with the stud he came from because they guaranteed his viability I suppose for three years. Mm. Yeah. So what happens in that situation when the results are not really what you were hoping for or expecting? Uh, I suppose we were just trying to get down to the source of the problem. So we did some blood tests for BVD for those heifers because we um, had had BVD issues in the past, but that, that's all come back clear. So that's that's not the issue. And then, um, yeah, the stud organised a, a tester to come out and test the bulls to see how they were performing, and one of them came up as, as not being very good. So that's our problem. How frustrating for you, especially since it's been such an amazing autumn and there's heaps of feed around? Yeah, yeah, quite frustrating. They are the, the younger of the animals, so essentially they're your best genetics coming through. But then we can't afford to just hold half of the mob through for another 12 months without having any sort of revenue income from them. It's a tough call to make. Yeah, yeah. So does that mean some of the empties will go to the works? Yeah, all the dries are gone, so some of them went to the works and then some of the younger ones were actually sold store so for someone else to take and, and oh. take through the winter and finish yeah so normally you wouldn't have done that sent them to the works no correct yeah yeah, yeah. Well, unless they were dry but the percentages normally in the heifers are only one or two percent dry if, if that if any so yes. yeah. yeah a big hit on the bottom line quite a quite a big hit both stocking rate and financially yeah and sheep wise how is everything going yeah, not too bad. We haven't scanned any of the hill ewes or the hoggets yet, so the replacements. And then we're just looking at shearing some of the hill ewes pre-lamb uh, next week. So everything's wintered quite well. So the the hoggets, the younger ones, we had them down at the lease blocks so on kale or on crop. 
so they were mated on that crop the first time we've done that too and then they've been back here at home wintering on the crop as well so they've grown out really well quite happy with how they're sitting so the hill ewes lamb the 25th of September and then the hoggets lamb 1st of October and we've probably set up better than we have ever been for lambing and calving at the moment um, there's a lot of grass around the ewes are in, and cows are in good nick so and we don't realise how lucky we are yeah we're we yep we're feeling pretty positive about the the lambing and production side of the season ahead not so much about the forecast prices and, and things like that um, but that's pretty well out of our control we can just try and get as many lambs on the ground and as good weights and, mm. and stuff as possible we are learning to focus on what we can control yep. but, but there are a lot of decisions to make you know like you can't have the cattle in a place that would be eating feed that we need saved for the spring but it's also they literally clean up the rough parts of the grass out the back and it's not because they get crappy feed it's because they can eat it with their long tongues that wrap around the grass and rip it out and the sheep need the short grass that they nibble and you know there are a lot of decisions made in there and do we buy more stock in to to get the feed down to the quality comes up or is that too hard on management we don't have the cash flow and all that mm. so yeah we had lots of feed and you know we sort of go yeah it was good but you still have to manage it I guess is what I'm trying to say mm. yeah is there a um, local farmer discussion group where you can talk about these things yeah we had a um, discussion group kind of through beef and lamb come on to the place for a couple of hours and they were looking at low input farm systems essentially so mm. we took them around um, showed them what we do and talk their ear off for a couple of two or three hours I think and it was pretty organic really it, it was just up to them to ask us questions there was no format or formalities it was um, but it was cool it was there's a whole range of different farmers one organic farmer and then some hill country guys and flatland guys and, and some locals that we hadn't met yet so that was pretty cool yeah. yeah and sometimes it's quite good when those discussions are quite informal so that people can feel like they can ask them anything yeah I think so and you knew that some people felt very strongly about something and someone else would feel a different way. But it was all up for discussion and that is what you want in a discussion group. Yeah. We, we quite enjoy having those kind of groups around, not just discussion groups, but any of those kind of groups that bring a whole bunch of people together because not only do hopefully they learn something from us, we also learn from them. Mm. And you had another group on the farm as well. Yeah, yeah, we've had a couple of groups. Uh, that one was through ECAN, so Environment Canterbury, and it was yeah focusing on the Cust River. So we're at the top of the Cust, one of the kind of catchments, and they were talking about Mahingakai, so just all the the values that go around the waterways, not just the food and the the species that live in the waterways, but also the just got a kiddo flying past. Um, but just the, you know, everything that's associated with it, with the waterways, but the land associated around it as well. Mm. And I feel it's quite important that we, that we do look after our waterways, you know, like our kids swim in the creek. We drink out of the springs on the hill and we don't want to see the water degraded when it leaves our, our farm. So we want to do what's right by, by the environment as best we can. Now attached to the tractor behind you is uh, a brand new machine. Tell me about that. Yeah, so this is a new um, sponsorship deal, I suppose, through the YouTube channel. And it's a post driver. So it allows you to park your tractor in a safe place and then put the post driver where you want to have the post rather than the old way of 
putting your tractor where you want the post. So, and that may not always be the safest spot. You think hill country? Yeah, hill, yeah, mainly yeah, hill country. Um, so yeah, pretty awesome piece of kit, and and pretty excited to to demo this for the next twelve months. And I can see a vintage red tractor in your stable. Yeah, so that's a nineteen forty four, I think, Farmall B. So that came from my dad. Actually, did most of the restoration on that. So it it was on the farm when my grandfather bought it in nineteen seventy three. Back up in the men or two, it's um it's a pretty cool old old girl. Its um, front two it, wheels are very close yeah, so it's a tri, together. It's a triaxle, so tricycle type type setup. Um, but yeah, a bit of history. So my mum used to drive that tedding hay years and years ago. I've I've the only time the first time I ever saw it run was when I went and picked it up from Dad's place. As a kid, it always just used to sit in the shed because it was broken. So. Yeah. used to play on it and pretend you know as you do as kids yeah. yep. so when your mum used it it was when you were little little oh real little yep. yeah because yep. Alistair's mum's not around anymore yep. so it's pretty cool yeah. uh, link back a and bit, then of, bit of history there yeah didn't your dad actually sell it and then buy it back pretty he quick he did yeah when he, when he sold the farm up there we had two farmals actually a farm will be that one and, a, and an M and he sold, B, sold both of them but then within a couple of months I think he bought that one back yeah. <laughs> I think because of the history because of the link it's just a cool piece of gear have you taken it for a spin no Jenna? <laughs> no I haven't I um I need to don't I yeah you do yeah. it hasn't been here a huge amount of time yet I was just brought down here when Alistair's dad moved again so it's pretty gorgeous I love it mm. I love Alistair's grin when he's driving it <laughs> it's got a crank handle thing at the front too can you still actually do normal farm work with with a tractor like that uh well of course you, you couldn't put this big post driver on it <laughs> it would weigh more than the tractor um oh I'm, I'm looking for either a sickle bar or a belly mower for it just to mow the roadsides and mow around the yards just to keep it keep it running i don't want it sitting in the shed just sitting there for, for nothing cool, so though. oh it, it does especially in the old stable there yeah yeah, yeah. I will take a photograph of it today and put it onto our webpage in case anyone wants to have a look. This yeah. looks like those classic like kids' cartoons where it's got a big face on it, a big smile. or Yeah, you know. yeah. Both Gina and I do like our history, both of the area and the farm, and, and of course it's just added to it. So Yes. What's your relationship with this land here? My family bought it and Alistair and I lease it now. So the family that were here before we came... We're here for a very long time, since settlers, sort yeah. of... 1880. Yeah, 1880. So I did not grow up on a farm as beautiful as this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did grow up on a farm, not too far away, but it was flat and stony and dusty and quite the opposite to this. Yeah. Now we are going to head out now and check up on some, some ewes. Yeah, so we've got the early single bearing ewes just over the road over here. driving down the laneway past your bulls there's a big one over there eating um, eating some hay yeah he's he's the oldest one that we've got that one so yep he's uh, about five years old that bike yep. and we can see the uh, the sheep in the distance they're enjoying 
having some sun on their backs. Yeah, everything's enjoying the sun at the moment. Um, as soon as they've got a full tummy, they'll sit down and spread out and yeah, dry out. Just crossing over the road and into another paddock. Oh, it's a bit muddy in here. Yeah, anywhere under the trees or um, or in a bit of a hollow is uh, a lot wetter. Now the creek behind us flows into the Cust River. Yeah, so that's one of the tributaries, so one of the creeks that run into the Cust. These use about due for a, for a wee shift. So what we're going to do is just step this fence over a couple of metres, so not pull the whole fence down and put another one up, we'll just incrementally walk it down the paddock. Yes. And any day now we'll have lambs on the ground. But um, yeah, so they were scanned, so they were at the lease block, and then they came back here and all got shorn. You normally get the shearing done before before they lamb? Yeah, correct, yep. So we find that that works quite well for a couple of factors, so it helps them find shelter when, they're, when they are lambing because obviously we're a wee bit colder so they don't have all that wool so they go and find a nice cosy spot. Um, it also sets them up well for summer. So fly strike's really been quite an issue over the summers the last couple of years just with it being so wet. So the less wool they have on them then the less dags that they can accumulate and uh, obviously the less attracted to the flies they are. Alistair Bird there, who also makes regular videos for his Kiwi Farmer YouTube channel. Cosmo was also talking to Jenna Bird at their property near Oxford in North Canterbury. Well that's it for now, koina mō tēnei wā. Don't forget to go to our webpage for more information on the stories you've heard today and photos of the people behind the voices. The address is rnz.co.nz slash countrylife. And we do love to get your feedback. Email us at country at rnz.co.nz. Thanks for joining us. Kia mahana. Have a great weekend. Bye now. <laughs>